KMTT Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. We'll be hosting Harav Yitzhak Blau, who will be giving a series on modern rabbinic thought. Today we're going to look at the thought of Rav Meir Simcha HaKoyen from Dvinsk, the Meshach Chachma. Rav Meir Simcha was born in 1843, and he passed away in 1926. One of his rabbim in his youth was the author of the Oneg Yomtov, Rabbi Yomtov Lippmann Halpern, and he served as the Rav in Dvinsk for more than 40 years. In fact, there was a period of time in 1906 that he, they wanted him to take a rabbinic position in Yerushalayim, and the people of Dvinsk argued that they couldn't do without him. They actually wrote a letter to the to the, those involved in Yerushalayim about how they were, Mayor Simcha's presence was crucial for them. Among his works are, of course, the Ar Sameach, his commentary on the Rambam, and he also has volumes on Shas, and the Meshachachma, his commentary on Chumash. Of course, his name is implicit in both of them. Ar Sameach, of course, plays off his name, Mayor Simcha, right, Light and Happiness, and Meshachachma, so also in the Rashi Tevod of Meshach, you have Mayor Simcha HaKohen. There is his two works. There is actually an interesting story involved in the order of publication of these two works. Apparently, Rav Meir Simcha wrote the Meshachachma, his commentary on Chumash, in his youth. But his father did not want that to be the first sefer he published. His father was nervous that Rav Meir Simcha would not be respected as a major Talmud Chacham if he wrote a commentary on Chumash, that the, the route towards uh, achievement for a Talmud Chacham has to be something in a more Gemara or Halachic vein. And therefore, his father implored upon him, and indeed, the first sefer he published was the Ar Sameach. Later in his life, he wanted to publish the Meshachachma, and actually, uh, I have a personal collection to this story. My grandfather was involved in the publication. In fact, uh, I'm going to have the rare opportunity to quote my mother's book on the internet. Uh, my mother, Dr. Rifka Blau, wrote a book about her father of uh, tights. And in this book, in chapter 4, there's a discussion about my grandfather's relationship with the Ar Sameach and with the Rogachover. My grandfather did not live far from Dvinsk, and when he was home from Yeshiva, he would go to Dvinsk to visit two of the greatest gedolim of the time, Rabbi Meir Simcha and the Ragachavar. And Rabbi Meir Simcha there uh, talked to my grandfather about this issue, and my grandfather helped him find an editor for the Meshachachma. Now, the irony of the whole story, of course, I believe, is that it seems to me the Meshachachma is a more significant and more unique sefer than the Arsameach. So due to his father's plan, he ended up putting out the Arsameach first, but it seems to me the Meshachachma is even more significant. And this is not just my opinion, but in my mother's book on page 35, Rav Meir Simch himself says the world can get along without the Ar Sameach, but it requires the Meshachachma. And I really think there's some truth to this, that the Ar Sameach is a wonderful commentary on Rambam, but there's something more unique about the Meshachachma and its approach to Chumash. And in particular, I think we have a phenomenon here that we noted with the Nitziv also, because Rav Meir Simcha was both a great Talmud Chacham and a sensitive reader of Tanakh, I think in particular, there's a profound sense of his importance when one learns the legal sections of Chumash. That in mitzvot, or Meir Simcha is often a very important commentator. So we're going to look at two themes in the Meshachachma, in Meir Simcha's commentary on Chumash. One theme having to do with the centrality of free will. Now the fact that free will is very central to Meir Simcha, I think, emerges from his uh, halachic commentary also. If one opens up Hilchas Tshuva, and sees the Arsameach on the Rambam in Hilchos Tshuva. Of course, there are two prakim in Hilchos Tshuva that discuss free will and deal with various problems involving free will, including the famous uh, conundrum, how to reconcile the sense of divine foreknowledge with human freedom. So one of the longest pieces in the Arsameach, perhaps it's the longest piece, is a long discussion of this philosophical issue with different approaches. So already in Rav Meir Simcha's halachic work, we see a, an interest in free will, 
And I believe this is manifest in his commentary on Chumash as well. And here we're going to see a few places this is manifest. Okay, first of all, <clears throat> it's particularly manifest even in the very beginning of Torah. In the very first parak of Torah, when we find out that man was created in the image of God, so it becomes a question, what does it mean to be in the divine image? Here is Rav Meir Simcha's definition in Breshed, Perak Aleph, Pasuk Chafav, Nase Adam B'Tzalmenu, Hatzel Meloki Hua B'chira Chofshit, Boli Teva Machriach, Mak Meratzon V'Seichel Chofshit. Right, what does it mean to be in the image of God? It's to have free choice without your nature determining your choice, but rather out of your will. Now, one could define Tzel Melokim in all kinds of ways. <coughs> the Rambam Mimor Nebuchim defines Tzel Melokim in intellectual terms. Right, the ability to conceptualize, the ability to analyze. This is what gives us the Tzel Melokim, which of course fits the particular emphasis the Rambam puts on intellectual cognition. For Rav Meir Simcha, it would seem that the essential characteristic of humanity is the freely choosing humanity. Right, Bechir Chavshid is what it means to have a Tzel Melokim. The Rameir Simcha goes on to read other aspects of the creation story along these lines. Most famously, after a human being is created, after Adam HaRishon is created, Hashem does not say, Vayalokim Kitov. Rather, at the end of the sixth day, we have the following phrase, Vayalokim et kol tov ma'od. And here Rameir Simcha says, Lo vayalokim al Adam befrat. It does not say about humanity specifically, for a very simple reason. Here we see the hint of free will. Why? Because in all other creatures, there's no free will, there's no drama. What you get, what you have. That's it. Therefore, Hashem could look at it and say, because right? it's already fulfilling its purpose. Right? The rock and the tree and the apple is already doing what it's made for. And therefore, you can't say, right? you have to wait and see. Every human being could make something of himself, could do something productive, could do something wonderful. Or could God forbid doing something destructive? So it becomes impossible to look at humanity and say, Yalo Kim Kitov. Now this answer was said before the Orsameach. He is not the first one to suggest it. But again, I do think this reflects the centrality of Bechirach of Shit in his choice, in his thought. And Rav Tzadok goes on to, uh, excuse me, the Mayor Simcha goes on to say that when it ends, it's pointing to the fact that humanity is really the purpose of creation and the pinnacle of creation. So when you add human beings to the created order, you get the possibility of tov ma'ot. Although still on an individual basis, you cannot look at man and say kitov, because that remains to be seen what kind of choices the man will take in life. And this idea that humans have free choice, and that gives us a certain uniqueness, this can be said both in contrast to other parts of the physical universe, the animal kingdom or inanimate matter, where there's certainly no free choice at work, but it's even the case as well even in connection to the angelic beings. There also there's a contrast, right? The angels just do what they're told to do. And here, Rav Tzadok has a very creative reading of a famous Midrashic idea. There's an idea that a malach can only do one job. Okay? That ain't a malach yor Can't do two different jobs. Now, the question is why? Now, this, I don't know if there's a long discussion of this by other Mepharshim. Why is it that a malach is unable to do more than one job? But the Rav Meir Simcha in Vayikra, Perak Yuter Pasad Yudchet, has a fascinating reading, where he says, V'af ha-sichliyim ha-nivdalim, also the abstract intellects, Shalu mehem ha-karmonim ha-bechira, they don't have free will. V'zenichlal b'mamaram, she'ein malach echad oseh shtei shlichuyot, he quotes Breshet Rabba Gimel, she'ein bo ha-fechim, excuse me, Breshet Rabba Nun, she'ein bo ha-fechim, v'hum uchrach b'hasagato v'shlemuto. He does not have opposites, and therefore he's coerced. Meaning, having more than one job opens up the possibility of complexity. It could be this way, it could be that way. There's negation, there's dialectic, there's opposing poles. 
Right? This is not the kind of life that a malach has. A malach has a life of simplicity, of unification, of only one goal. The malach lacks free will. So the fact that a malach can't do shtei shlichiyot is perhaps precisely this idea. The malach is a creature that does not know posing poles, unlike humanity. And again, this is for tovat humanity. Humanity has free will, unlike the animal kingdom. Humanity has free will, unlike, unlike the, even the angelic beings. This is also influences Rav Tzadok's reading of certain stories and of certain halachot. Regarding halachot, Rav Tzadok, not Rav Tzadok, excuse me, Rav Meir Simcha uses this, Rav Meir Simcha uses this to explain, to explain the halachot of Tumah Vitara. If we look at the halachot of Tumah, we seem to see an interesting set of details about what can be makabal Tumah. For example, inanimate matter tends to usually be not something that's makabal Tumah. And your real estate is not makabal Tumah. And even things that are makabal tumah, they tend to be only after a certain process. For example, produce and fruits and the like are only makabal tumah after there's a hachsharal makabal tumah. Right? Water or some kind of liquid, one of the seven liquids is passed over them. And then they're able to be makabal tumah. Uh, we find the same thing with kelim. Right? Till I've made a vessel, till it has a receptacle, it is not really makabal tumah. Right? And that's why there's a whole mesechet in tarot called mesechet kelim, trying to figure out various vessels when are they considered a finished product and able to be makabal tumah? And there are all kinds of debates, right? The famous debate that causes a split in the relationship between Rav Yochanan and Reish Lakish in Bab Metziah Pei is all about this, right? When is a knife makabel tumah? After it's forged in the fire or only after cold water is rushed over it? So, but why are these the details of tumah? So Rav Meir Simcha, the Meshachachma, says that tumah is also a reflection of human free choice, right? Tumah v'tara is not something that could exist in the natural order. The natural order is just as it is, Human free choice creates the random element, creates the element of it could go this way, it could go that way, that could generate a status of tahor or tameh. And then Rav Meir Simcha says, that's why a human being can become tameh. But that is also why only items that are somehow connected to human usage are susceptible to ma. So if you have a random piece of metal or wood, it's not susceptible to ma. But if it's made into a kli, then it is susceptible to ma, because then it's connected to the adam. This is something that Rav Meir Simcha works out in Breshid, Perikirchet, Pasuk of Zion, right? And he says the same thing about fruits, right? Washing off the fruit, in a sense, gets it ready for human consumption. Only when it's connected to the world of humanity is there a possibility of Kabbalah Tumah. So here we have Rav Meir Simcha using the centrality of free choice and the uniqueness that it gives humanity to explain a certain halakha. He also uses it, as I said, to read certain stories. After the beginning of the Asherat Hadibrot, Am Yisrael famously comes to the Ribbon Shalom and says that we don't want to hear the Dibrot directly from you. This is something that's too difficult. We would rather hear it from Moshe Rabbeinu. And the simple reading of this might be that it's just overwhelming. The direct encounter with God is an overwhelming experience. And this is something that uh, the people are trying to avoid. It's too frightening. It's too intimidating. That would be one way to read the story. However, Mayor Simcha has a very creative other reading of the story. This is in Dvarim Perakei so Rav Meir Simcha explains that the people, that if they heard directly from God, there'd be lack of free choice. So there in Perak Hei Pasuk Chafei, Hei Tivu Klasher Dibeiru, so Rav Meir Simcha says as follows, Heim Tanu, they argued, The whole purpose of human existence is free choice. And if man is forced, right, then his fulfillment of Torah isn't truly valuable. Excuse me. 
because they had such a clarity of conception and Matan Torah. This actually brings us to another pshat in Rav Meir Simcha. Right? The uh, Gemara in Shabbos says that it uh, seems to introduce an element of coercion into Matan Torah. Right? The famous Gemara that has a play on words on Vityatsvu B'Tachtir Ahar. That the simplest reading of Vityatsvu B'Tachtir Ahar is that the people stood at the foot of the mountain. But nevertheless, the Gemara in Shabbos, the Pechesim and Aleph, suggests that means the people were under the mountain. And it famously says, Kafa Aleim Har God suspended the mountain above them like a barrel. If you accept the Torah, that's all and good. And if not, this will be your burial place. Now, many Mepharshim want to know why the Gemara raises, brings this into the issue. Why bring an element of coercion? Here, Am Yisrael actually seem to do the right thing. Right? Their history in the Midbar is not always so illustrious. But this seems to be a grand moment. Am Yisrael freely chooses the Torah, freely decides to enter into the covenant. And the Gemara feels a need to bring in an element of coercion. So why does the Gemara do so? Now, there are various interesting possibilities. Right? Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky argues that the covenant had to introduce both a freely chosen element and an element of Avodah Yira also, that there's always Avodah Yabba and Avodah Yira. The Maral in the Gu'arye is a very profound comment that this is not about coercion, but about understanding the significance of the choice. It's a choice that's not like a choosing between chocolate ice cream and vanilla ice cream. It's a free choice, but a choice of great magnitude. That's what the Gemara is trying to say. However, Mayor Simcha there in Yisrael says that when you have such an encounter with divinity, you don't have free choice. Right? There's a let, diminishing of freedom in the, in the face of divinity. Now, this would seem to be work a little bit, and that's what the Gemara is giving expression to. It's not that God literally held a mountain above their head, but it's that the encounter with divinity limited their choice. Now, here, based on what we've seen so far in Rameir Simcha, this is not something he's going to be thrilled with because he thinks about the centrality of free choice. So it's interesting that according to Rameir Simcha, that's exactly the people's request. If we have this direct encounter with divinity, and we lack freedom, to some degree we lose the point of, uh, of the human existence. And as again, this clear conception, but if they hear from a prophet, then they will indeed be creatures of freedom. He explains why they truly be free. And it's pretty striking that according to this, the request here for motion, not from God, it wasn't really about the overwhelming nature of it. It wasn't about they were being afraid. It was more about the ability to preserve freedom. And indeed, therefore, Moshe says, This indeed is a reasonable request. According to this reason, according to this reading, the people are not doing something negative when they're making this request. They're actually responding to something really quite uh, positive. So just to sum up our first theme here, we've seen that the issue of free choice is something that's very important for Amir Simcha. It's important, and we see that it's his very definition of tzel melokim. That's what it means to be a human being, to have free choice. That's why God cannot say kitov about the humanity. Unlike every other aspect of creation, humanity, there's a drama. It remains to be seen whether they will fulfill their goal or not. This is even opposed to malachim. The malachim can't do two, shli- two messenger jobs at once because they don't know duality, they don't know conflict. And this explains halachot. Tom of is only the product of human free choice. That is why Kalim and Peirot need to be in a certain relationship to humanity. They have to be closer to human usage for them to be Makam Tumah. And of course, this leads to his reading of the Harsinai story, that the original moment of Harsinai, that divine experience, the grand revelation, <clears throat> involved the diminishing of Bechira. And therefore, the people's request to hear the Torah from Moshe Rabbeinu involves a return to a full Bechira, which is indeed the purpose of existence. So this wraps up our one theme in Rav Meir Simcha. And as I pointed out, this of course is manifest in the Ar Sameach also, in the long discussion he has, which we won't enter into here, 
but how to justify or how to reconcile divine foreknowledge with human freedom. Let us now move on to a second theme in Rameir Simcha. Another issue that comes up among various religious thinkers is the relative value of the miraculous and the natural order. And you see this already in the Gemara in terms of different Tanaim seem to have different modes of functioning. How quick are we to move to the miraculous? To what degree we view the move to the miraculous as problematic? And in this particular issue where Meir Simcha, I wouldn't say he was anti the miraculous, but there's a very strong sense that the natural order really should be the essence of existence. And this is manifest in a few things. I think it's very beautifully manifest in Rameir Simcha's first comment in the beginning of Parshat Bechu Kotai. There, Rameir Simcha relates to a Gemara in Masechet Brachot and Dalad Bet. And the Gemara says that if you say, Tilala David Bechol Yom, Muftaklo Shuben Olam Haba. Right? You say, Ashrei, what we call Ashrei, Tilala David, three times a day, one gets into Olam Haba. Now, here a couple of points should be made. First of all, this is in sharp contrast to another Gemara. There's a Gemara in Masechet Shabbat and Dafkuf Yud Chenmebet. That says, Homer, halal yom. If you say halal every day, this is blasphemy. Now, arguably, Ashri is just another form of praise, another form of halal. So we seem to have a striking contrast that if one says halal daily, one is somehow doing something uh, religiously problematic in a very great degree, where if one says tilala david three times a day, one is doing something wonderful and is assured of a place in Olam Haba. So let's leave aside that question. The other point to be made here is what's so special about tilala david? So that Gemara in Brachot and Daftal has a discussion. So maybe there's a certain theme, uh, the idea that God sustains the world. Maybe that's what's so significant about Tilala David. But the Gemara points out that there are certainly other Prakim of Tilim that have similar sentiments. So why exactly is Tilala David so special? Ah, then the Gemara says, well, maybe it's the Alphabet form. The fact that Tilala David, of course, Ashrei goes to the Alphabet. Right? Maybe that's what makes it so special. But then, you know, there are better Prakim for that. Tilim Parakufyutet. Not only does it go through the alphabet form, but it does eight psukim for each letter. So if it's just based on the alphabet form, we kufyotet would seem to win. So the Gemara concludes that it's the combination. It's both the idea of God as the sustainer of all existence and the alphabet form combined that gives Ashrei its special status. And here I think one can ask a very fundamental question, which is, is it just the cumulative force of two factors that have nothing to do with one another? Meaning, for whatever reason, the alphabet form is positive and the fact of God as the sustainer of Maspiel Chalchai Ratzon is crucial, and that combination, even though they don't really relate in an inherent way, wins the day. That's why Tilal David said three times a day gives you a place in Olam Haba. Or is it, of course, where I'm heading that the two are somehow late? It's not just that it is two very good things, but the two very good things somehow work together. There's somehow an inherent connection between the format of Aleph Bet and the idea of Potechet Yedecha. So here in the beginning of Parshat Bechukotai, Rameir Simcha suggests as follows. He says, what's the truth? The truth is that the Teva is really the way it should be. Right, that's the Ikar. Right, Torah, the Teva is in, in sync with Torah, that's the way it's supposed to be. But, but unfortunately, because of the regularity of the natural order, it could easily lead to the forgetting of God. Right, it's just a force on its own without the Ribbon Shalom. That's why there's miracles, meaning the occasional miracle is a reminder of the Ribbon Shalom, but then Rameir Simcha says very sharply, they're not really the purpose. I mean, in an ideal world, we'd all be able to find God in the natural order. The natural order is set up for the place to be the place of human striving. It's just that the occasional miracle is a reminder of God. 
And then Rameer Simcha says that explains the discrepancy between the Gemara and Brachot and the Gemara and Shabbat. We, of course, don't say Halel for the natural order. Halel Gadol is said about unique events, right? We say Halel on the Chagim when the grand miracle happened, when there was a Kriyat Yam Suf, or when there was a sustaining of the Jewish people in, in Sukkot in the Midbar, or when there was a grand revelation at Sinai. But if you say Halel Gadol every day, it's an implicit rejection of divinity as manifest in the natural order. Right? Halel Gadol is saying the only thing to truly praise God for is the grand miracle, which means it's a rejection of the natural order. There, the blasphemy is to be found. However, Tila David Ashrei is apparently a celebration of the natural order. Right? We say it daily. We're not saying Pesukei Dezimah for the unique miracles of God, right? the one-time events. We're saying Pesukei Dezimah for the daily events. So therefore, it's totally appropriate it should be said three times a day. Right? This is a thanking of God or a praising of God for the natural order. Now, Rav Meir Simcha says, we can understand the Gemara Brachot as well. Is of course arguing that God has created a natural order capable of providing for the needs of the world. Right, so we celebrate that aspect of the natural order. Ah, and here comes the clever part. What is the significance of the Aleph Bet? So the significance of going to that kind of that kind of acrostic could be explained in various ways. Many Mepharshim seem to argue that the Aleph Bet is trying to convey kind of the totality of human language. We've exhausted human language in our attempt to praise God, and we've used every letter available for this purpose. Rabbi Meir Simchav here does not explain it that way. He says, what is an alphabet? It's regularity, it's order. One knows that if one is counting the alphabet, Zion will precede Chet. One knows that Ayin will be followed by Pei. That's exactly what the natural order is. It's predictability, it's regularity. So here we have a tremendous example of the relationship between form and content. That the alphabet is not just a pretty poetical development or engagement, but rather the alphabet is conveying the exact idea. The whole point of Ashrei is the praising God for the natural order. That's why it's appropriate daily. And that's why it's an alphabet, it's regularity, and that's why it has potechi yedecha, that we view God as the sustainer of the world in the wonderful natural order that he created. Now, there are other places in the Meshachachma where Meir Simcha seems to argue that there might be a difference between the common man and the wise in this regard. That this is something that the wise can appreciate. The wise look around at the natural order and see that it was set up beautifully, and that it reflects the wisdom and power and benevolence of the Ribbon HaSholam. Well, often the common man will just become accustomed to nature and only be interested in the miraculous. So I think one sees this in a few places. So in Breshid Perakei Pasuk Aleph, Rabbi Meir Simcha works off a different verse in Ashrei. That it says, in Ashrei, Chasidechli Yavarachucha, and says, Rabbi Meir Simcha, they're, they're praising God for Teva. They don't need more, right? The Chasidim, the unique, pious individuals, they could bless God just based on the bounty they see in nature. But then if one continues, it goes on to say, And only after that, Meaning the Bnei Adam need to see They need to see a Matan Torah. They need to see a Kriyat Yamsuf. Only after they see the Gvurat are they able to then, But the Chasidecha understand Yivarchucha without needing to see the Gvura of an individual miracle. So again, we have a sense that the truly discerning and the truly understanding can find God in the natural order and praise Him for that without needing the miraculous. I think this attitude is also manifest, not just in terms of the split between the natural order and the miraculous, but also in terms of how one appreciates a great man. What makes a tzaddik a tzaddik? And here, Rameir Simcha also has a fascinating piece in the beginning of Parsha's bow. In the beginning of Parsha's bow, we hear some praise for Moshe Rabbeinu. And the Pasuk says, ish Moshe, od Moshe also is very great in the eyes of Egypt. Be'inei avdei paro u'vinei ha'am. 
both in the eyes of Paro's servants and in the eyes of the people. Now here, I suppose one could take Paro's servants in different ways. One could have Paro's servants as kind of in a lowly fashion, kind of the page boy, uh, the person sent out to clean the stables. But of course, we might be talking about the advisors of Paro. And if that's true, then the Avdei Paro would be kind of the significant people in Egyptian society. And then the Pasuk would be describing the greatness of Moshe, both Be'nei Avdei Paro, in the eyes of the intelligentsia, in the eyes of of the noble and the aristocrats, and also in the common man. Both of them have great respect for Moshe. Now, why does each one have great respect for Moshe? So Rav Meir Simcha explains that a, a great man can get respect in one of two ways. Either because his wisdom and his character, right, you see him and he has insight and he has profound wisdom and he behaves in a particularly outstanding way. This is certainly one way for the great individual to receive respect. Or from grand or strange actions that can't be explained. Some of this person seems to be able to do things that can't be explained rationally. And Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, does both. Moshe Rabbeinu reveals a certain wisdom and shows a certain outstanding character. At the same time, Moshe is able to perform miracles, uh, the makot and the otot that he does before Paro. Now, how does this great person get respect? So Rameir Simcha says something very interesting. He says, first of all, I guess the more obvious point, that the masses, they'll react more to the miraculous. They might not be discerning enough to pick up on the outstanding behavior or the tremendous wisdom, but they can understand being able to turn a snake into a staff or turn water to blood. This is something they understand. The nobles, the aristocrats, the advisors of Paro, they appreciate the wisdom of Moshe. They appreciate his character. So that's that. However, here Rav Meir Simcha says it's even more interesting. There's a reciprocal relationship here, which is something interesting about his insight into society. And here Rav Meir Simcha says as follows. The exalted person due to his wondrous deeds. So indeed, the masses love that. They love the miracle worker. But then he goes on to say, So the masses start to publicize his name. The And the great publicity takes with flight, as it were, even in the hearts of the wisdom, the wise in the people. And here there's an interesting idea that Mayor Simchas, you say, society is very dependent on one another. And the intellectuals and the wise might think that they're not at all affected by society, but they are. And if enough of society starts to praise this as a great fellow, praise Moshe, they're also impacted on that. They start to think that he is also great. And Rameir Simcha says the same thing in the opposite order. Just like there, sometimes it goes up from the masses to the intellectuals. Sometimes there's a trickle-down effect as well. Right? The intellectuals praise the great wisdom and fine character of Moshe Rabbeinu, and that has an impact on the people. So this is just an interesting side point to Rameir Simcha's insight into society that sometimes the masses influence the elites, sometimes the elites influence the masses. Be that as it may, Rameir Simcha says that's what's going on here. Moshe is great, de paro Moshe is impressive on both levels, right? The Abdei Paro, who are a little bit more discerning, a little bit more understanding, appreciate both the knowledge of Moshe Rabbeinu and his outstanding character. But the Am appreciates that he's a miracle worker. And again, I think the fact that the wise are the ones who appreciate his character, I think Rameir Simcha is giving a certain value judgment preference for that. Again, here it's not exactly the same thing. We're not talking about the natural order, but I do think we have perhaps a certain ideal here. Just as in responding to God's deeds... Right, the truly discerning will appreciate the beauty of the natural order and will not necessarily need the miraculous. So too, regarding a great individual, right, the truly understanding will appreciate that individual's wisdom and character and not need him to be a miracle worker. 
One last piece in our mayor simic will help complete this second theme of ours. We know that uh, the Gemara in Shabbat, in the middle of a discussion of Hanukkah, suddenly has a tension about Yosef. Right? It talks about how Bo Reik in Bomayim, that the pit was empty, didn't have water, but it had Nechashim Bakravim. And many drashot have been given about the relationship between Yosef and Hanukkah. And here, Rabbi Simcha has a beautiful point here. He points out, famously, the Hanukkah story, we both have the miracle of the oil and the, mir- the salvation. And Rabbi Simcha says that the, uh, the salvation is really where it's at. Right? That we don't celebrate the miraculous, we celebrate salvation. It's just that the miracle is a way of pointing out the fact that it was the word, it was God. That's what happens there. So Rabbi Simcha points out that you might have a similar thing in the Yosef story. Now here you have to remember one other source. There's a medrash in which Rabbi Tanchuma says in Breshis Rabbah that Yosef came back from burying his father Yaakov and he looked in the bar and he made a bracha. So he also notes that it's a Rabbi Tanchum in Masechet Shabbat who says the drasha in Nechashim Akravim. And Rabbi Simcha says it all comes together here. Why does Yosef really need to make a bracha? Not because he was saved from the snakes and the scorpions. It was really a salvation from Avdut. It's really what happens in a person's history and destiny that matters. But again, but a bracha, you need a clear manifestation of divinity. And the clear manifestation of divinity was only in the supernatural. So that happened when Yosef was saved from the Hashim Ravim. So again, we have a case here where perhaps the miracle helps us see God clearly, enables us to make a bracha, right? enables us to set up a holiday in the case of Hanukkah. But where the real value is at is in the salvation, right? The true value of Hanukkah is, being, is our victory over the Greek Syrians. But the, the oil makes it clear that it's the divine hand that's helpful. So too, the true victory of Yosef is the salvation from servitude toward, to greatness in Egypt. But the Nechashim Akarim is a way of introducing the clear divinity. And that's the bracha the Rei Tancho makes, says Yosef makes on the way back from bearing Yaakov. Here again, I think we see in Rameir Simcha the second theme here that the miracles have their place sometimes in terms of conveying the presence of God, but ultimately the true, truly important thing in life is what happens within that natural order. So we have two themes where Mayor Simcha are both the significance of free will and the significance of the natural order, and we'll return to Mayor Simcha in a week.